We are considering the Old Testament book of Hosea in our Sunday night services, and we come tonight uh, to the next section of this book. I've told you from the beginning that the book of Hosea was written following the sermonic messages, that the sermons that Hosea preached long before they were written down. He preached them. And if you look at them and you read the book and study it carefully, then you can see how these messages kind of clumped together. Some of them were relatively short. Hey, even a good prophet like Hosea can preach a, fir- a short sermon every now and then. Not often, but every now and then. Not going to tonight, but every- <laughs> it can happen. Uh, some of his messages were relatively short. Some of them were, uh, cover several chapters. And uh, the, no- the one we begin tonight, we won't finish it tonight, but the one we begin looking at tonight is one of those that cover uh, quite a bit of territory. Chapter 9, chapter 10, part of 11. Hosea chapter 10 and verse 12, I think, gives to us uh, the key passage of this message. Uh, the text verse of the whole thing. One of the most powerful verses in the book of Hosea. famous passage. Hosea chapter 10 and verse 12. Sow for yourself righteousness. Reap in mercy. Break up your fallow ground. For it is time to seek the Lord till he comes and rains righteousness on you. Break up your fallow ground. For it is time to seek the Lord until he comes and rains righteousness on you. This is the essence, the end of the appeal that Hosea was making to Israel long ago. And though it was written to a nation uh, far removed from us many centuries ago, it reaches across time and space to appeal to us directly. And you will see many correlations, as we have throughout the book of Hosea, to our own nation. Long ago, God said, the wicked shall be turned into hell and every nation that forgets God. Uh, That's a a law that God has established, and it is just as much true today as it has ever been. And so tonight, we we find the prophet Hosea calling out to the people of God. It's time to seek the Lord. The great American preacher Vance Havner was fond of saying that the the problem today in America is that the situation is desperate, but the saints aren't. And uh, there is a problem when saints get kind of casual about things. And we don't see the desperation of the situation that's going on around us. Uh, But I tell you what, we'd just about have to have our heads firmly dug into the ground in order not to see the situation, the desperation in the situation in our nation tonight. Uh, We see it. It is growing rapidly. It is intensifying. Every single day seemingly brings another message of some random act of violence. Some more people who are being shot up, either individually or collectively. Some big shootout that takes place. Somebody gets run over. Somebody beaten up and attacked and killed. I mean, all over the streets of our nation, we see this incredible plague of violence. Why? We see a growing hatred and unrest and anger in our nation, just seemingly waiting for a time to erupt. And I'll tell you what, July in 105 degree weather is a good time for anger to blow up. Just get on the freeway. Be careful. Hope your air conditioner works. 
Hosea was not prophesying in a time of national calamity, but in a time of national prosperity. The nation of Israel had secured several alliances with several foreign countries. And because of these alliances, because of the things, the treaties that they had signed, the things that they had accomplished, they were enjoying a time of economic prosperity. Unlike some of the other prophets, Jeremiah prophesied during the siege of Jerusalem. Habakkuk saw the Assyrian army coming against the land like a flood. And he cried out to God. Habakkuk did, saying, God, when are you going to do something? And God responded, I've already done something. You see that Assyrian army? I brought them, God said. Read Habakkuk. Hosea, though, was speaking during a time of prosperity when they were being marvelously and abundantly blessed Chapter 9 is set against the festivities of harvest time as Israel gathered together to praise God and thank Him for the abundant harvest that they had just received. And that's pictured in the first six verses of chapter 9. And Hosea walks in uninvited (laughs) and drops a bombshell of a sermon on them, warning them that God was about to bring judgment on the nation, warning them that their nation was about to fall. He warns of economic collapse, of famine, of an invasion from a foreign power. He'll speak of war and disease and ruin. It did not make Hosea a very popular guy. When the pandemic broke out a couple of years ago in the United States, there were many, many voices around the country and some even in our own town that met together and began to declare victory. Oh, we're going to see victory. It's going to be great. Uh, They were claiming it and naming it all over the place. And I felt a little bit out of place sometimes when I suggested that, you know what? Uh, God may be judging our country. And in fact, he probably is. I wonder if anybody would even doubt by now that God's judgment hand is at work. You say, well, Brother Rich, where is it going to go? I don't know. I know one thing, and I've said it a lot, and I still believe it. That for our nation, it is revival or ruin. It's repent or else. We could have a great revival. We could. Holy Spirit could begin to move. He could. The Word of God could begin to be blessed abundantly. We have seen it turn this nation around before. It could do it again. And I believe it. And I'm praying for it. But even as I believe in revival and pray for revival and preach for revival and work for revival, I face the sobering reality that we might be looking at a time like Hosea was. could be a time of judgment. We don't know. We don't know. But we do know one thing. Our God reigns. (laughs) Our God reigns. That's good. Hosea chapter 9 and verse 7. The days of punishment have come. Wow. Doesn't that have a ring to it? The days of punishment have come. The days of recompense have come. Israel knows. That is, Hosea was saying, you all feel this. You you sense it. Israel knows the prophet is a fool. The spiritual man is insane because of the greatness of your iniquity and great enmity. The very people who could have led them out of it. The faithful prophet. Their spiritual godly men. 
They called them insane. Fools. Foolish. Because of the greatness of their iniquity and great enmity. The watchman of Ephraim is with my God, but the prophet is a fowler's snare in all his ways. Enmity. Enmity in the house of his God. So Hosea brings to the people a faithful message, picturing himself as the watchman of Israel and warning them of approaching danger. But instead of listening to the watchman, they were blinded by their sinfulness and unable to see the truth of the warning that God sent them. They resisted God's work in their life. That's the enmity. And as such things always do, it hardened them to the truth of God. God's judgment on rebellious hearts is more rebellion. God's judgment on hard hearts is harder hearts. They accuse then Hosea of setting a snare for them or being a, a troublemaker, stirring up trouble. Uh, like Ahab said to Elijah so long ago, Art thou he that troubleth Israel? <laughs> oh, it's all the preacher's fault. It's the church's fault. Uh, this is classic behavior. Even today, if somebody tells us what we don't want to hear and backs it up with a true Bible verse, we often react by lashing out against the one who tells us the truth. This is so common that Jesus warned his disciples Woe to you when all men speak well of you. Speak well of you. Beware the preacher that never ruffles any feathers. You can be too well liked. So, after warning them, it's time. It's time. The judgment is time. No wonder then, when you understand now why he was saying in Hosea chapter 10, it's time to seek the Lord. Time was running out. Do you see that urgency in the message? Time was running out. It's time to seek the Lord. It's time to break up your fallow ground. To sow to yourselves in righteousness and reap in mercy. It's time. It's time. Hosea then gets to the meat of his message in beginning in verse 10, chapter 9. Hosea will mention six cities. Six cities, only one of them relating to God's judgment. We'll save that one for last. The other five cities represent various aspects of the nation's character. It's intriguing that God mentioned cities because of the prevalent sin that they were known for. I could do the same thing in America. If I mentioned Las Vegas... You're going to think of gambling. If I mentioned San Francisco, you'd think of homosexuality. Although, honestly, that's so prevalent anymore that could fit in any city. If I were to say Nashville, you'd think of country music. Not that country music is related to those other things that I mentioned, but it's just uh, what Nashville is a symbol of. When I was growing up, the kids talked about going to Broken Bow all the time. I never went. To this day, I don't guess I've ever been to Broken Bow, Oklahoma. But back then, it was apparently a, a, a place that was just synonymous with partying. That's where people went uh, to party in southwest Arkansas. It's wide open, they said. Kind of like Panama City is to us today. 
see, cities can take on a characteristic, something that they become known for. And we see that uh, throughout the Bible. Uh, Corinth was known because it was the place where the temple of Aphrodite was. And so it was known as a place where people from all over the Roman Empire would go to worship Aphrodite in scenes of most forbidding vulgarity. People would take a moral holiday there because of the sexual promiscuity that was so, so well known in the city of Corinth. It's happened again and again throughout time, and we see it tonight in these cities that God is going to mention. I'm going to warn you, uh, the stories that are told through these cities are disturbing. They're meant to be. They're meant to be. Sometimes I wonder why that we can watch scene after scene after scene of what's going on in the cities of America right now and not be more disturbed than what we are. These scenes were disturbing. God was poking a nerve. He was rubbing salt in a wound. They knew about what had happened in these cities. They knew it well. But to hear God talk about it through his prophet, mm, it's a big deal. The first city he mentions is the city of Gibeah. Hosea chapter 9 and verse 9. They are deeply corrupted as in the days of Gibeah. He will remember their iniquity. He will punish their sins. Mentions them again in Hosea chapter 10. O Israel, you have sinned from the days of Gibeah. There they stood. The battle in Gibeah against the children of iniquity did not overtake them. The scene of Gideah was a story of a national tragedy. By the end of the book of Judges, the Old Testament, the nation of Israel had lapsed into awful moral and spiritual decay. And Gibeah told the story of a Levite. He was a man who was consecrated to God and a spiritual leader of the people, or he should have been, was intended to be. And yet the spiritual leader was caring about a concubine, a secondary wife, which meant that he had more than one wife. How many more? We don't know, but... He had one con concubine. Uh, in modern language, this would be a person who was married to one woman, and yet he was living with another, oftentimes in the same house, if that seems complicated. It's just the way it was. He had a concubine, secondary wife. Instead of carrying on a secret affair, he was just moving out the country with her. They weren't legally married. She was still considered a part of his family. This woman uh, left the Levite and went home to her father's house. And the Levite came to get her back. And on this journey then, they went to the city of Gibeah. This is all told in the book of Judges. When they got to the city of Gibeah, they were confronted with a lust-crazed mob who wanted to have sexual relationships with the Levite, the man of God. We can't really call them a homosexual crowd because they took his concubine instead and she was brutally abused until she died from the abuse. This was such a horrible thing that the whole nation gathered against Gibeah, which belonged to the tribe of Benjamin, and the men of that tribe were killed. So when God mentions Gibeah, he's telling them a message. He's giving them a message, very strong message. 
The message that he was giving them was that the problem of a people crazed by lustful desires, perhaps even the problem of homosexuality, was with them still. Even though they had punished Benjamin, even though they had killed so many of the tribe, it had not stopped sin. And from what God says then through Hosea was, and the whole reason for God even bringing this up, would seem to indicate that nobody really recognized it is a problem anymore. They'd gotten used to it. They had such a low view of marriage that having sex outside of marriage wasn't even recognized as something to be concerned about anymore. Gibeah. Does that sound familiar to us tonight in our nation today? He mentions then Baal Peor. Chapter 9, verse 10, I found Israel like grapes in the wilderness. I saw your fathers as the first fruits on the fig tree in its season. But they went to Baal Peor and separated themselves to that shame. And they became an abomination like the thing they loved. The story of Baal Peor was told in Numbers chapter 25. And it's associated with the prophet Balaam. Balaam, you'll remember, was hired to prophesy against Israel. But he couldn't do it. God forbid him. You might remember studying the story of the donkey that spoke to the prophet. That was one of my favorite Bible stories, by the way. It makes for some very, very interesting reading. You know, it was Balaam whipping on his donkey, and all of a sudden the donkeys turned around and started talking to him. Did that really happen? Yes, it did. You really believe that, Brother Rich? I sure do. I sure do. So Balaam was forbidden from cursing Israel. But he was very successful at corrupting them. He taught them then how to go to the Moabites to begin to commit harlotry with the women of Moab and going to their scenes of idol worship and bowing down to false gods. By the time it was done, God responded in judgment and 24,000 people died as a result. This was the very first time that Israel had become involved in the worship of the Baals. It wasn't the last. It was a problem that would plague them all the way up to the Babylonian captivity. And they would go to the Baals again and again and again. So involved were they. We've already seen it in the book of Hosea. So involved were they with the worship of Baal that they couldn't tell where God stopped and Baal started. They called God my Baal. This was known as the mountain of Baal. Baal Peor. That's what it means. God speaks then of how he saw Israel as grapes in the wilderness. What a graphic image that is. Grapes in the wilderness. To picture yourself going through a dry and barren land, rocky landscape, desert landscape, and suddenly there's a vine just loaded down with grapes. What a treasure that is. What a priceless find that is. He describes them then as the first fruits of the fig tree, long awaited. Now, some of you have been waiting for your first tomatoes for a while. Talked to a guy the other day, is waiting for his first crop of okra. And he said, just when it started putting on the first pods, the deer came out and ate every bit of it. So I volunteered to help him with his deer problem this year. Might work out. We'll see. 
You know, the first fruits of something long awaited. You watch it. You're carefully watching. Is this ripe? Is it ready? There's a fig tree. They're waiting for the figs to get used. That's, that's how God was looking at the nation of Israel. Something precious, something valuable. Even before they were born as a nation, even before they got it to the promised land. Though the problem of Baal worship was deeply injected into their system. You know, sometimes we have that same experience. Long before we're mature, long before we're adults, we begin to experiment with sin. We get involved in a sinful behavior. Nobody tells us at the time that we're going to create an ongoing struggle with that sin that will last for a lifetime. We, We don't know. Our enemy knows. Our enemy knows. The problem with Israel was that they were no longer battling this. They'd given up and given in. It was not a a battle they were even trying to engage in anymore. You see, it's one thing when we struggle with sin and occasionally give in to it. And we know we've given in to it. And we're, we're, we're convicted about it. And we repent about it. That's one thing. It's another thing when we start calling wrong right. That's where Israel was. They didn't see anything wrong with the Baals. In many ways, they'd gotten so used to it, they weren't even aware of what they were doing anymore. Baal Peor. God then mentions Tyre, a very famous city, a Phoenician city, in close proximity on the northern side to Israel. It was known for its fleet of ships, Tyre, was strongly fortified and so wealthy they considered themselves impregnable. And in fact, for many centuries, they were never conquered. But yet, first by the Babylonians and then ultimately by the Assyrians, the city was overwhelmed and ultimately destroyed. Verse 13 of Hosea chapter 9 says, Just as I saw Ephraim like Tyre planted in a pleasant place, so Ephraim will bring out his children to the murderer. The point for Israel was simple. Tyre was full of prosperity, but it was also full of idolatry. They felt absolutely secure in their situation. They felt impregnable. Their prosperity then blinded them to their need for God. And the same thing can happen to you and the same thing can happen to me. We can go through days and weeks and months and years really not thinking about how desperate we are for God. But can't that change? Just that quickly. Just that quickly. They were full of sinfulness and rebellion, almost thumbing their noses at God, his own people. They were just like Tyre. He mentions Gilgal. Hosea 9 and 15, all their wickedness is in Gilgal, for there I hated them. Because of the evil of their deeds, I will drive them from my house I will love them no more. All of their princes are rebellious. On one side of the Jordan River was Baal Peor. Gilgal was on the other. When they crossed the Jordan and entered the promised land, Gilgal became the first place where an altar was erected for the worship of God. Why did Hosea bring that up? Well, Hosea was almost saying to them, it seems clear 
that even though they had crossed the Jordan, had gone through the waters, and even though they entered the promised land and built an altar and worshipped and offered sacrifices, God looked at them and said their sins never really changed. They were struggling with idolatry by the time they crossed the Jordan River. And when they got on the other side, they were still struggling with idolatry. It started out then, Gilgal did, as a place for the worship of God. But gradually, like so many others, it turned into a place for the worship of Baal. Because the people had not changed. There's one thing that I've been amazed at over the course of my life. It is how many spiritual experiences we can have with God and still be unchanged. The last one that he mentions is Beth-Avon, verse 5 of chapter 10. The inhabitants of Samaria fear because of the calf of Beth-Avon, for its people mourn for it. And its priests shriek for it because its glory has departed from it. Beth-Avon means a city of iniquity. It's contrasted with the more famous Bethel. Bethel. Uh, Beth means city. El is the city of God or house of God. Bethel then was the house or city of iniquity. Bethel was the place where Jacob built an altar unto God, the place where he saw the ladder that stretched into heaven. But even this place of worship had been corrupted And the golden calf of Baal worship had replaced the altar of God so that God didn't call it Bethel anymore. He calls it Beth-Avon. And it's sad when people end up then worshiping a false god and yet being so ignorant of God that they don't even know they're worshiping a false god. That can happen. It does happen. Well... I don't mean to just leave you with a real bad message tonight, but this is a tough one. I told you, it's disturbing. It came to a time in their pros- to them in a time of their prosperity. It warned them that the time of God's judgment was upon them, and it's going to culminate with that great response. It is time to seek the Lord until He comes. To give you just a taste tonight of what next week is going to be. He tells them to break up their fallow ground. Any farmer can tell you what fallow ground is. Ground is fallow, uh, fallow ground is ground that was once in production. But it's been allowed to go fallow because it's not been cultivated. It's not been broken up. And it's grown up then in weeds. And it's no longer productive. The ground becomes hard. What rainwater might fall on it then just runs right off. It's fallow ground. God says it's time to break that up. He's not talking about their dirt. He's talking about their hearts. Their hearts that had gone fallow. Why were their hearts fallow? (laughs) Because they were undisturbed. And God tells them, if you'll break up your fallow ground, then I'll come and rain righteousness on you. Isn't that a great promise? We'll talk about that next week. In the meantime... Hosea mentions a lot of things. He mentions a coming judgment of diseases. And because their problem was so much of a sexual nature, it isn't surprising then that some of the diseases that he mentions seem to indicate those kinds of sexually transmitted diseases. 
some that cause miscarriages and stillborn children. It's a prominent feature of those kinds of diseases that spread in the midst of sexual promiscuity. He tells them the prosperity of the nation will be taken away, that war will come in its place. And they're going to see their children and families suffer horribly. I told you that one of the cities that God mentioned that through Hosea in this passage was all about judgment. And that's Beth Arvel in Hosea chapter 10 and verse 14. Um, it could be translated the city of God's ambush. It was a place where the people of Israel were viciously attacked. Uh, to the point that even women and children were killed. Beth Arvel. Is this unknown to us today? Of course it's not. Uh, we've had a sobering more, uh, reminder in the last few months that war is just as brutal as war has ever been. Just as indiscriminate as it's ever been. Just as violent as it's ever been. That it preys upon women and children as it always has. The hatred and the destruction associated with it cannot be unknown. And even in our civilized world today that we thought we'd come so far, yet we're getting daily reminders. This was what God was promising through the prophet Hosea. But interwoven with that is the message. It's time to seek the Lord. Break up your fallow ground. It's time to seek the Lord until he comes and rains righteousness on you. You know, the things that God spoke of that were happening in the nation of Israel so long ago that were prompting his impending judgment are happening in our nation too. They were escalating then, they're escalating now. Yet aren't you glad that then and still today, God says, seek the Lord. There's still that option for revival. And where does revival start? If my people. If my people who are called by my name shall humble themselves and pray and turn from their wicked ways and seek from my face. Then will I hear from heaven. Forgive their sin, heal their land, if my people. You say, well, Brother Rich, America is not going to seek God right now. You know, I think you're probably right. That's not even my concern. My concern is, are we going to seek God? Are we going to break up our fallow ground to the point where we begin to be disturbed and Cry out to God in prayer. Oh, how our nation needs tonight the prayers of God's people. There's a very personal application in all of this as well. Because you see, while we don't have a lot of control about what goes on in our nation, we do have a lot of control over what's going on here. And where that all begins is knowing that we have a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. Thank God for these who came tonight professing their faith in Christ. I'm so grateful I had the chance to hear their testimony and to hear them affirm, uh, even tonight, that they had received Jesus Christ as their Savior. You heard it in public. I got to hear it in private. It was glorious to hear these talk about receiving Christ as their Savior and now following Him in baptism.
If you haven't done that tonight, then there's no better time than tonight.